This episode of Radio Drama Revival is brought to you by our friends at Dashlane, the form-filling, password-remembering, data-protecting, all-in-one application. Will, play that jingle, please. Dashlane, live life in the fast lane. Get yourself some cash lane, and you'll be living easy and free. Your internet experience could be so much better with Dashlane. That's right, compadres, it's Dashlane, the service that remembers your passwords, protects your online data, and fills in your logins automatically. It works on Windows, Mac OS, Android, and iOS. So unless you're a magical hacker who largely lives outside the consumer operating system ecosphere, Dashlane will help you remember your passwords no matter where you are. How might you use Dashlane? Well, my little sister Julie used to use her ex-roommate's, ex-boyfriend's, brother's, ex-girlfriend's Hulu password. So if you had Dashlane, you could share streaming service passwords with your ex-roommate's, ex-boyfriend's, brother's, ex-girlfriend. And you could also use the service to generate a new password when you tired of their freeloading. Start dashing through the internet and help support the show by visiting dashlane.com RDR to start your 30-day free trial of Dashlane. No credit card required. If you like it, use code RDR at checkout to save 10% on your premium subscription. All right, on with the show. This week, it's two great tastes that go great together. A little bit scary and a little bit heartfelt. The crossover event of the year, facilitated by two fine people whom we love very much. Fred Greenhalge's storied horror podcast gets the Christopher Reynaga treatment as we unveil for you Point Mystic's curious history of the Dark Tome. That's coming up right here on Radio Drama Revival. Hey folks, welcome to Radio Drama Revival, the podcast that showcases the diversity and vitality of modern audio fiction. I'm your host, David Reinstrom. Here is a thing I like. The modern horror anthology, The Dark Tome, in which great short fiction by established and emerging writers is adapted into chilling little tales, bookended by an ongoing frame narrative. Yes, it is produced by our executive producer, Fred Greenhalge. Yes, I love Fred very much. These facts aside, the show is also extremely good. Here is another thing I like. The thoughtful, elegant series Point Mystic by Christopher Reynaga, in which scripted fiction, biographical truth, and a little improv twine together into a shining braid that grabs the heart and won't let go. Sometimes the braid is silvery cold. Sometimes the braid is golden warm. But always there is a story about Point Mystic and the people who have come there. We've featured both of these shows on Radio Drama Revival before now, but let me tell you something. These two shows are now converging on each other for a crossover event. You don't need to know anything about either show in order to enjoy this piece, but if you're fully caught up on both of them, there's additional context and texture to appreciate. I should also say, The Dark Tome was paywalled for a while on Stitcher Premium, but that exclusivity has expired. Now, if you want to hear the entire second season for free, you can. Fred has released the whole series on the regular podcast ecosystem, so go nuts, my friends. But for now, enjoy this episode of Point Mystic, The Curious History of the Dark Tome, Part 1, Storybook Beginnings. In the past year at Point Mystic, we have focused a great deal of our investigations into the phenomenon of supernatural doorways. What creates them? Where they go? 
and what may be lurking on the other side. The two-part episode that you are about to hear, The Curious History of the Dark Tome, episode 231, was first broadcast three years ago this month. In the time since, startling new evidence has arisen that the supernatural artifact, the Dark Tome, once thought to be lost forty years ago, may actually still exist. We have updated the end of this story to share what we now know. It's still unknown whether this magical book, The Dark Tome, is evil. But there's little doubt that whatever waits beyond the supernatural doorway of this story is. Here's the story. I think when most people hear the name Joseph Ricci, the first thing they think of is the famous occultist who killed a two-headed beast in the New York Public Library. What was your grandfather really like? He was the most amazing man. He he loved books. He he's al he always loved books. Even as a kid, you know, when when other kids were saving up allowance money to go and and buy you know bubble gum or candy at the store, my grandfather would save money to go buy books. He spent most of his teenage years in the library, and I can remember when I was a kid, he there was a little boy who lived down the street and he saw something in this little boy something i think a, a fellow reader the way this boy's eyes would light up i guess when when my grandfather passed by on the street and he had this big stack of books in his hand i know this this kid's family was i don't i mean i was little so i don't know that they had very much money but i got the impression that they they didn't and i think he he sort of th this kid wanted to be able to read him. I remember my grandfather used to sneak him books sometimes. If he saw something that he thought that this kid down the street might like, he, you know, he'd, he'd pick it up for him. And I always thought that was, that was sweet. This is Mary Larson, granddaughter of the renowned occult researcher, Dr. Joseph Ricci. She's also one of a small handful of living people to have seen and touched one of the most famous occult artifacts to be studied and verified by an American university. I was around nine years old when I first saw it. Grandpa Joe had a big library. Uh, it was all by itself in this one wing of his estate. And we weren't really supposed to go over there, but uh, sometimes I'd go and I'd hide. And, you know, I, because they, it had these big shelves and uh, sometimes they cast these big shadows. It was a good place to hide if you were playing hide-and-seek. So uh, sometimes I'd go and I'd, I'd play in there as a little girl. And it, I loved it. it. It was one of my favorite rooms. I loved the way it smelled, like that paper smell that books have. Uh, all these these beautiful wooden shelves, these tall shelves with uh, ladders. And then there was this big picture window toward the back of the room. It looked out across these tree-covered lawns and it was just it, it looked so majestic to me it looked like something that should be in a castle and I think even though we weren't supposed to be in there grandpa 
Joe knew we we played in there and it, it, because he had this this love of books he certainly wasn't going to ever tell us like no you 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 can't play where there's a whole host of books there were parts of the library we weren't supposed to go near and we respected that uh, for example there was this big safe that had been given to him by the university and it had the, the school seal of the university across the front um, a book with the alpha and omega symbols across its pages uh, I know that that safe was something we were not supposed to touch and now I'd never seen it unlocked before except for this one time like when, when I was nine and it was open just a crack and I knew I wasn't supposed to but you know I was I was a kid so I thought okay I'm gonna open it and it was it was full of of these incredible books I, and I, I knew it would be I knew it would be full of of because you know when you're a kid and somebody tells you you can't touch that you can't look at that you can't go into that you know you want to so I'm, I'm imagining books with all kinds of beautiful pictures and 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 gold leafing and 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 there were there were a lot of really old books really dusty ones what like ones that that I was almost af afraid to touch more because I was afraid they'd fall apart in my hands because they were so old but right in the middle of this pile of books uh sort of away from the all the other books were sort of pushed away from it you know I knew it as soon as I as I saw it, that this was a a special book it was on this stand and there was this this really soft red velvet covering and it was it was that book I think because the velvet you know it, it was it was soft you know it was like uh it was just it was it was I wanted to know I wanted to know what was under it and so I I, I sort of peeked underneath you know and I saw this pure white almost like a leather bible and the lettering had gold leaf it was like a fairy tale book really uh, it didn't look like any of these other leather bound books um, they were dark you know they had kind of yellow pages they they looked crumbly but this one looked you know it didn't look brand new I, I don't know that that would be the right way to say it but it looked like pure uh, unflawed untouched you know it, it, it looked like something that still it almost was alive it was almost like it had like a, a a life to it a breath to it and and I touched it and I swear it was warm the cover it was warm it was like like skin almost it was like a sleeping animal like a cat I I, I, I was sort of transfixed by it and then my grandpa Joe came in and he saw me and I was so afraid he was gonna yell at me because again you know we knew from the time we were little that you didn't touch the safe and you didn't touch anything in the safe or near the safe or around the safe I thought he was gonna you know forbid me from ever going into the library again I, I was I was really scared and my grandpa Joe was not a scary kind of guy but 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 he you know he came over he took the book out you, you know took the book off the stand and he sat me down on his lap and he opened it and he, I thought he was going to read it to me but he didn't he asked me if I knew what the book was 
And I said, no, I, I would have no frame of reference for what the book actually was. But he told me it was the most important discovery of his life. He told me it was the story of everyone, that it was maybe the oldest story in existence. And he told me that the book could change the world for the better. And to me, I, you know, that was that was like the essence of a of a a magic book, a book that could fix the world, you know, change the world. And he told me he was going to use the book to do just that, that he was going to try to to make things better, to fix things, and that uh, he would do anything to help people. And, you know, now that I think about it, I, I think that's what got him killed. On Monday, March 19th, 1979, newspapers from the Bangor Daily News to the Boston Globe printed stories like this. Retired Arkham University professor presumed dead in unexplained car accident. Joseph Ricci, former chair of the Linguistics and Cryptozoology Departments at Miskatonic University, died in a single-vehicle collision when his car plunged from the Highway 95 bridge near Simpson Falls, Maine, into a tributary of the Sebastocook River. Witnesses in nearby vehicles claimed that the car exploded before flying off the road and plunging into the icy waters. His body has not been found. Joseph Ricci is survived by his adopted daughter, Samantha Larson, and granddaughter, Mary. The thing the article doesn't say, uh, I, I think he told some fellow professors at the time, you know, people that he worked with. And I think he told my mother uh, was that he was driving to Arkham that night and he had the book in his possession. I think he was about to do something important that he thought would save the world. What's that? I think he meant to destroy it. I think when it finally came down to it, he found something or learned something. And I think he meant to destroy that book. I'm Christopher Reynaga, and this is Point Mystic. Each episode, we speak about stories behind the myths and legends, the unexplained, the magical. Today, we explore the legacy and the disappearance of the most important research ever conducted into supernatural doorways, and of one of the most infamous books in occult history, Libra Tenebris, The Dark Tome. Through history, the Dark Tome was said to have been possessed by kings and warlords, saints and madmen. What is the truth about the Dark Tome? Truth? There's no truth about the Dark Tome. You think there is, uh, there are four. Can you introduce yourself? Suppose I could, I'm Gussie. Just Gussie? Well, my mother thought uh, Wilbur was a really good name, but I never took to it much. So, if it's all right with you, why don't we just say Gussie for now? 
An hour's drive from the quaint villages of Maine's rocky coast, you'll find the town of Simpson Falls and Gussie's, a bookshop of the strange and the weird. Beyond the withered monkey's paw on display in the window, you'll find towering shelves of mythology and history, mysticism and popular fiction. But locked in shelves behind an antique desk are the real trade in which Mr. Gussie has made his reputation, as New England's off-quoted expert on rare occult books. There's a story that Augustus, first emperor of Rome, Supposedly, he ordered that uh, Liber Tenebris, uh, known today, which we call uh, the Dark Tome, that they find it and they burn it along with on how many thousands of other magical texts. It's right there in the Bible in the book Acts. They say long before that, the book survives another destruction, uh, the Great Library of Alexandria. And of course, the legends... Some of them say the dark tome can't be burned, couldn't do it, uh, that it's bound in a, some kind of mystical skin that's uh, completely immune to the, to the effects of fire and flames, that sort of thing. What kind of skin? I'm not sure. Different stories say it's either maybe the skins. I've heard people say it's the skin of dead children or the skin of an angel's wings, depending on what you believe about where the dark tome come from in the first place. Could that be true, that it's immune to fire? Maybe, I suppose. Maybe the dark tome was just good at surviving in other ways. No one knows where the dark tome originated. In early Christian mythology, the Liber Tenebris was said to be a great scroll of the widest hide given to Moses by the angel Raziel, the archangel of secret teachings. Other legends say that it was given to Adam and Eve as they departed the Garden of Eden by the angel Lucifer. But historical references in Babylonian and Egyptian texts thousands of years older may indicate that the Dark Tome is much more ancient than the Abrahamic religions. It may be as old as the oldest human stories. Because stories are what the Dark Tome's power is said to be. They say that the Dark Tome contains every story ever told. Uh, some say every story ever would be told. But reading the stories Somehow you open a doorway to all those other worlds. Real historical stories? Fictional stories? All stories. Look, uh, who's to say uh, whether the stories we think of as fiction aren't real and uh, that there aren't other worlds and, and then what we think of as fiction is just our way of tapping into those worlds with our dreams. If the Dark Tome contains every human story ever written, why does it focus on such macabre stories? For the same reason that Grimm's fairy tales are so macabre. Look, the uh, uh, stories about good and evil, and uh, what's in store for people, what your fate is. 
But the wicked are not always punished in these stories. No, that's not the point at all. Look, the point of these stories is to try to understand the unknowable and maybe learn a little bit from it. The Dark Tome is just one of many artifacts that have been investigated by our show that are said to open doorways. Objects such as the Ottery St. Catchpole boot, the Carroll Looking Glass, and the wardrobe of Dr. Diggory Kirk, to name a few. But the Dark Tome's legend is a magical book, is nearly unique, in that it is not a book of spells, but a book of stories. I'll never forget that day. Grandpa Joe sat me on his lap, and he opened up the book, and he asked, What's your favorite story, Mary? A nice, happy story. I want you to picture it in your mind. And my favorite book growing up was a copy of Grimm's Fairy Tales. Uh, Grandpa Joe gave me that book, as a matter of fact, and I loved it. I loved those stories, even the really dark ones. I There was something so beautiful and magical and fantastic about it. I just loved those stories. My favorite, and he would read this to me sometimes, was, was called The Golden Phoenix. And... I knew that was not the kind of story that he wanted me to choose, but I couldn't help it. I, I, he, he asked, and, and that was the first thing that came to mind. When I saw the book that he had in his lap, uh, I flipped through some of the pages. What did the pages look like? It's kind of hard to describe. And I know this sounds crazy, but at first, they looked almost blank. It, it, it's like... But then the page began to shimmer, and I could see words forming. And I, I know how that sounds, but that's that's exactly... I can see it as clear as day in my head. That That's exactly what happened. It was this, this blank page, and then it was almost like a, like a ripple in water. And then these, these words started to form. And I looked up, and it was like the wall and the library were, were just gone. And... In, in its place, there was this path through these really dark, huge European woods, you know, those those really old, ancient, like fairy tale kind of woods. Uh, they're, the trees are, are different. They're, they're old and, and twisty and, and black, and they're, they're sort of covered with this dark moss. It, it, it was like a, like a witch's forest in the fairy tale. And at some point I knew I could stand up and I could walk through whatever this kind of portal in the wall was and that I could actually go down this path. And that was simultaneously, it was terrifying and exciting. And I, I just, I, I almost did. I almost did. I could, I could feel like my body sort of gearing up to, to, to go, to just, stand up and, and walk. But then there was this sound. Uh, it was a sound sort of deep in the woods and it sounded big. It sounded massive. And it sort of slithered across the ground, uh, like, like it was low, you know, and, and kind of heavy. And I couldn't see it because wherever it was, it was still in the distance. Uh, so, uh, but I could hear it. I could definitely hear it. And it made the woods around it go quiet. In fact, I hadn't even realized there were sounds in the woods, like chirping and, and tree frogs, and until 
that those sounds just stopped. And all I could hear was this, this sound of this massive thing slithering through the forest. And I'll, I'll tell you, it was not the sound of the phoenix from the story, from the fairy tale. It wasn't the sound of any bird. It wasn't the sound of anything I have ever heard before or since. And now, now I love those kinds of scary stories. I, I always did. Even as a kid, uh, I, I loved that sort of thrill of, of being scared. But with that sound, I just wanted it to stop. It was nothing like the, the thrill of a scary story. It was a different kind of scared, a different kind of horrific thing. Uh, it was just, it was awful. The things that it made me think, the things that it made me feel, both like in my head and in my body, it was just, it was awful. I just, I, I wanted to stop and I, and I got so scared that I, I think I startled us both, but I reached out for where I thought the book was and I slammed it shut. And as soon as I did that, the path into the woods was gone. And what happened then? I, I think after a minute of just being stunned, we just started laughing. Uh, it was one of those things that felt as, as fantastic as it was, as, as crazy as it sounded, it was just something that, that at that moment seemed okay uh, because I was with my Grandpa Joe and I knew that he wouldn't have let anything bad happen. Uh, and, and whatever I had felt from that thing in the woods was gone. It was just, it was gone. And I, and I, it was, it was, I was safe and he was safe. And, and it was like a, a kind of scary toy that we'd put away. And he looked at me and he said, well, maybe when you're older. Did that point come when you were older? Where you opened the book again? Yeah. Yeah, it did. What did you see? I felt it from the very first time I saw through the portal. See, there was that thing that was slithering down the forest path. And for as awful as that made me feel, I sensed that there was something else, something bigger that uh, I couldn't see it, but it could see me through that doorway from without ever having to even step on, on that path. Uh, it could see me, it could find me. And it was, it was something vast and, and incomprehensible. And it waited on that other side of the door. It wanted to come through to this world. I think maybe that's what my grandfather saw in a number of those stories. Uh, but it was it was pretty terrifying. I mean, Grimm's fairy tales, they were my favorite stories growing up. I have never read them since. And I, I will never read them again. Although it's not a part of all stories, this idea that there is a powerful perhaps malevolent force that exists beyond this world is a common theme in human stories. It's a thread that runs from every ancient myth and religion in human history. It is a thread that may lead directly to the death of Dr. Ricci 
and the events around the final disappearance of the Dark Tome. According to Ricci's own papers from the archives at Miskatonic University, he acquired the book from a mentor who'd been teaching him as a young man, a man he does not name, but who, in his journals, he calls the Magus. Now, this was the early 1950s. At that time, every crackpot, psychic, every mystic, you know that Yuri Gallet who bending the spoons, he was there. Eileen Garrett, Peter Hook, all them fellows was rubbing shoulders at the Roundtable Foundation. That's up in Glen Cove, Maine. Professor Ritchie wrote that he first met the Magus at one of these Roundtable get-togethers. The Magus was, was supposedly an Englishman, I believe he's from London, and he claimed to have got a hold of the book when Germany fell during the World War. And he claimed he had been an officer in the Second British Army, and he uh, took the dark tone from the dying hands of Himmler, hey, one of them Nazi guys, he was supposedly a black magician. That part of the history never rang true to me. It's exactly that kind of tall tale getting around the Round Table Institute back in them days. They liked that kind of dramatic story. It never, never really sat well with me. It was, it turns out, exactly the kind of story that got the attention of Joe Ricci, then a young graduate student at Arkham. Orphaned at a young age, he felt drawn to the mysterious Englishman, like a father figure. And the Magus took Ricci under his wing. Ricci's university journals indicate that he became a kind of apprentice to the Magus, studying the book and accompanying him on his forays through the book's doorways. The Magus, he wrote in 1951, was using the book for a great purpose, to stave off an evil greater than the greatest of world wars, an evil beyond all worlds, whose name I dare not commit to paper. What was the Magus teaching Ricci as his apprentice? <laughs> Lord only knows. What we do know is from Ricci's published work that would eventually bring scientific fame. The study of supernatural doorways to other worlds, especially tainted doorways that he referred to as floodgates. Doorways that were not merely dangerous, but which led to places that he categorized as poisoned and tainted by a dark force and powerful deadly creatures. Creatures like the one that killed his teacher, the Magus. Whatever truly happened that fateful day in 1953, when the Magus and Ricci encountered a floodgate in the lower stacks of the New York Public Library, is a mystery. The Magus is dead, he wrote in his journal in a shaky hand, and with him, so much good in the world. The Libra Tenebris is in my hands now, and I must ensure that the light of this world is not extinguished by the coming darkness. Possessing the Dark Tome on his own for the first time, Ricci brought it to the attention of his fellow researchers at Miskatonic University, where he quickly gained prominence for his work and became one of the world's foremost authorities on supernatural doors and the cryptozoological creatures associated with them. It would be another two years before he would discover another floodgate like the one that had taken his benefactor.
the Magus. By then, he was ready. What he would find would become one of the most famous documented supernatural events of his career, and one of the most deadly. An event that would mark both the beginning and the beginning of the end for Dr. Joseph Ricci and the Dark Tome. The floodgates of Willow Hill. Do you know what happened to your grandfather at Willow Hill in 1955? Uh, S Sam knew. My mother, Samantha, she knew. She was there. She survived. And I mean she survived because she was a young girl and she was, you know, safe in her bed back in town. But I know that whatever was out in those woods killed our family. Thank you for taking this journey into the unknown with me. If you enjoy Point Mystic, then we'd love for you to take the journey and find our community at pointmystic.org slash community. There really is a secret of Point Mystic, one that you can be a part of. And once you've joined us, please consider supporting Point Mystic. You can gain access to early releases, bonus episodes, and special patron-only content. Find out more at pointmystic.org slash community. I'm Christopher Reynaga. This episode of Point Mystic, The Curious History of the Dark Tome, Part 1, Storybook Beginnings, was written and produced by myself, featuring characters from the audio drama The Dark Tome by Fred Greenhalge and Bill DeFries and the short story, The Floodgates of Willow Hill, by Mary San Giovanni. Story development and script editing for our story, by Marguerite Croft. Mary San Giovanni's latest novel, Beyond the Gate, is available for pre-order, and will be released this November. The Dark Tome Season 3, Simpson Falls, written by Fred Greenhalge, will be released this coming year. Mary San Giovanni is the voice of Mary Larson. Tim Sample is the voice of Mr. Gussie. Our episode includes the original score for The Dark Tone, Febriar, by Peter Van Reed. And our featured song is Sickle Vascule, by Blue Dot Sessions. This episode is distributed as a Shared Worlds Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 4.0 International, which means don't sell it, but do share it with your friends, make community, and make art together. Next time on Point Mystic, we reveal the tragic fate of Dr. Joseph Ricci and his dark tone, the Libra Tenebris. Presumed dead in the face of a dark force he believed could destroy the world. Stay with us.
If you want to support the work being done by Christopher Reynaga and Marguerite Croft, hit up their Patreon at patreon.com slash October Isle. That's I-S-L-E. If you want to hear more of Fred's work, head to finalrune.com. Did you know that we have a Patreon? We do! You can be a patron like Peter or Kat or Paula or Leon. Just head to patreon.com slash radiodramarevival. Did you also know that we have a web store? We really, really do. And if you love the logo for our podcast, you can wear it on your body. Our designer, Dave Brunel Brutman, who is also my best friend, works as a t-shirt designer. That's his day job. And he made a really elegant series of modifications to the show's logo, such that it works on any color shirt. Check out the store. You'll see. Radiodramarevival.com slash shop. And now, let us sound the traditional end-of-episode gong, followed by the traditional end-of-episode opening of the magic tome that contains within it, like, in addition to all the spells that can crack the world in half, a really goddamn incredible recipe for banana bread. The sounds of that gong and that tome tell me it's time for the credits. This podcast is recorded in Washington, D.C., which is the unceded territory of the Piscataway Indian Nation and the Piscataway Kanoi Tribe. Our theme music is Danger Diggy Doo by DJ Stranger Danger. You can find his music on SoundCloud. Our line producer and associate interviews producer is Will Williams. Our senior interviews producer is Eli McElveen. Our associate producer is Sean Howard. Our researcher is Heather Cohen. Our submissions editors are Elena Fernandez-Collins and Rashiko Rao. Our executive producer is Fred Greenhalge. I'm your host, David Reinstrom, and this has been Radio Drama Revival. All storytellers welcome. We've featured both shows on Radio Drama Revival. What is the name of the show? Rumble-bob-revival? Rumble Bum, welcome to Rumble Bum the Bible. Welcome to Rumble Bum the Bible. I'm Dumble Humble Bum. <laughs> <laughs>